0: From Lawson Media, this is Building a Unicorn, the show exploring what it takes to build a big global business. I'm Christopher Lawson. Business often involves making proposals. You have a client you want to impress, and so you spend hours or even days working on a presentation to try and win their business. Often those might come in the form of a PDF that you can email, maybe even a PowerPoint or keynote document. You build it once, and then when you have new clients, you copy that file, change what you need, and then you send it again. It's a manual process that can be difficult to manage, and it's not all that impressive. But today's founder built a system to make those boring presentations easier to create and far more impressive to your clients. Mark Tanner is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Quilla, an online platform that allows you to easily create the business documents you need and then send them to your clients as individual websites, including dynamic pricing information and the ability to sign and accept that proposal right there on the web.
1: The core idea behind Quilla is that uh, files suck. Uh, the way that, that documents work in this, this world is sort of based on this like 1980s way of thinking about the document um, and it's sort of been largely kept in place by the glorious Microsoft monopoly. Um, and so all Quiller is, is a way for anyone to create their documents, especially sort of customer-facing documents as web pages. And so if you can reimagine a document from the ground up uh, as, you know, as what you can do in the web and sort of not have to be in this A4 rectangle Uh, of paper. What can you do? Why can't you have analytics? Why can't you have buttons that do things? Why can't you have it live in this world of, of SaaS in the cloud where it can push and pull data from different systems rather than just being a dumb and ugly file?
0: Mark grew up in Sydney and throughout his childhood was surrounded by entrepreneurs. His dad ran his own architectural business, which he grew to around 60 or 70 staff. And his uncle also had a number of startups. Mark went to school at Sydney Grammar, and although he was a good student, he couldn't see himself pursuing the same kinds of career opportunities that his friends were interested in. He wanted to carve his own path, although he wasn't quite sure what that path would actually be. There was no, like,
1: plan. You know, there was no, like, I sort of look back on it, like, I think some people have these amazing narrative arcs of their their life and their career, and I'm deeply sceptical of all of them, because I think that really life happens. And you, you sort of, I think people who are very good at adjusting and knowing, um, you know, knowing where opportunity lies and being able to dive into it sort of, uh, and can be opportunistic in that side, I think, I, think, I think that sort of rings more true to me. And certainly I remember being at the end of high school being like, I, I feel like I should have a plan and I kind of really didn't have one.
0: At university, Mark studied subjects he was interested in. He did history and philosophy and also became interested in student politics. But he thought maybe he wanted to pursue a career in business, but he wasn't quite sure what that actually meant. So when his course finished and he was trying to work out what to do, he ended up getting some work with his uncle on an ebook startup called Read How You Want.
1: And it was 2008 and the iPhone and the Kindle had just come out in 2007. Ebooks were exploding and he had this like very interesting startup that was available and he they just needed people, they just needed bodies, they needed people to come on board, it was growing at such a pace, and so I was lucky enough to come and join them at this exciting time and then, and then sort of haven't left the ride since.
0: At the time, smartphones were still a novelty, and the iPad was just on the horizon. Amazon had launched the Kindle, and there was this rush to digitise books and make them accessible wherever you were, and it was this wave that read how you want was surfing. At the time when they sort of were first in there, there was this wild gold rush
1: to convert all of the publishers' books, which were all these like PDF and, and, uh, and you know, Word files into the various ebook formats. And so, you know, this company had figured out this clever way because there was, you know, Amazon's, Kindle had their format, Microsoft had their format, BlackBerry, of course, had their own format, and then it was this open source format called EPUB, which was kind of the one that they plus Kindle, the ones that, the, that won. But it was this incredibly onerous, expensive task to convert these books into into these different formats. And this this company had this bit of software that would just allow you to convert it once into this sort of almost like a middleware markup language in XML. And then it would just automatically then convert to all the other ones there, which meant they could do some really cool stuff around accessibility, which is where the company is now. So they would also convert it into... Braille and, and Daisy and audiobooks for the blind, and they could do interesting stuff around large print and dyslexic fonts and all sorts of cool stuff there. But really, the money in the early days was in the ebook space. But it was one of those things where, like, our curve just went up and up and up and up until the entire industry started being commoditized, and then like the, the price for conversion started dropping and dropping and dropping, and the company pivoted and pivoted again and pivoted again. Um, but it was like an unbelievable experience to see something grow from being a 15 person team up to being a sort of 50, 60 person team in a year. Obviously it sucked to see that be pulled back um, and sort of, you know, sort of having like finding cost savings and whatever else and getting more efficient in the process. But like they truly, it was like a wild, amazing ride and it was very fun to go and get to speak at digital publishing conferences and and sort of go to these sort of areas and, and sort of learn more about what that can look like. And obviously, you know, I don't think they were perfect. I took a lot of lessons from them as to how you, as some degree, what to do and also what not to do. But it was like, it was fantastic.
0: Mark started off doing sales, cold calling publishers and then convincing them to convert their books. But over time, he grew to become the Australian manager of the business, handling all their sales and marketing for the country. And it was a job that he enjoyed because the company was in this real moment where everyone needed the product that they were trying to sell.
1: I mean, cold calling is just so hard when you first start. It's just incredibly painful. But once you get over it and you get a rhythm and you learn how to do it a bit better, it it's becomes quite a fun game to sort of go from a complete nobody to someone who's having regular calls with them and meetings and working with them on plans and stuff. And I loved it. Like, I really, really. When it worked, it worked really well. And I think we were lucky enough to have a great product that was like when you have product market fit like that, just an excellent product at the right price point that makes everyone's lives easier. Obviously the whole industry changed and it's all sort of kind of got, auto- to be honest, it's sort of it's completely automated away now. But like for that moment, it was, we really did have the perfect solution and it was, it was great. It was a lot of fun.
0: Mark's job meant that he was always attending and speaking at conferences. And these conferences were often looking at the future of the publishing industry. And at one of these events, someone from Google was sitting in the audience, paying close attention to what Mark was saying. And Google
1: was famous for having Google Book Search and, and a bunch of other sort of, uh, sort of things on the edge of the publishing world, but they hadn't really gotten there, gotten into ebooks in any real way yet. But there were rumors that they might be, and there was Android was starting and getting bigger, and, and what was that going to sort of look like? And look, one of those lucky things where you speak at an event and you meet someone and you start chatting to them and 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 uh, you get along really well with them, and then it turns out they're in Australia on a hiring run to find someone to look after after their, their things in Australia, and then you apply for the job and you're lucky enough to get it. So, uh, was able to join Google really to do a similar job to what I've been doing beforehand, which was they wanted someone on the ground in Australia and New Zealand to look after their relationships with publishers. Now. Google had been, Google had this library project where they went around and scanned in millions and millions. I mean, I think it's well over 20 million books into their database. And sort of it's part of the search engine and whatever else. And I think it's probably, you know, I'm not sure it's been of wildly huge value to them, um, but, but it was a really interesting project.
0: They started that very early on, too. That it was like one of the core things early on was that we're, we're just going to scan every document, every book that exists yeah every every newspaper
1: every magazine that's ever been printed we're going to have it all in this database and make our search engine perfect i think they i think there was an estimation by one of the people in that team that there were like 100 million unique tomes as of like 2000 because like since then it's kind of exploded um but before that 100 million tomes and i think when i left the public figure was about 25 million they'd scanned in which is like kind of wild um so anyway, and these are often scanned in by hand, you know, page by page. Um, so so look, all the publishers in Australia, um, all the big publishers, had been part of a class action lawsuit to sue Google to stop them from doing this. Uh, <laughs> so when I joined, it was this sort of fun challenge of, uh, first of all, getting briefed by our lawyers on the state of the court case against Google <laughs> and publishers in Australia, and then also the one in America and sort of how this was all going. Um, and then starting to reach out to these, these publishers and saying, "Hey, how do we turn this into sort of a productive uh, uh, structure?" And to be honest, we kind of had to solve that that legal issue around the core legal issues around book search and and, and Google Scholar and all these sort of resources that use that that library scanning project and other stuff there. Um, we had to sort of get a contract on that side first and then sort of get them on board for, for ebooks books and, and, uh, and selling on that side. What became Google Play and the ebook section of Google Play and then there's also you know, other things with a newsstand and apps and whatever else. Um, but really the goal was to get, to get everybody onto Google Play as quickly as possible.
0: Mark's role at Google evolved over time, as the company moved on from the legal issues of the past and started working on a more one-to-one basis with publishers. Eventually, Mark's role involved working on global accounts, and he found himself selling big global agreements to publishers like Random House. Although over time, Mark realized that his job at Google was coming to a natural end. He'd achieved everything that he wanted to from working at Google, and it was time to think about moving on. You know, by the end,
1: Google had won everything that it wanted to win with, with Android, which was you know, Google's real fear was that Apple or Microsoft or Blackberry or someone would own mobile and would lock it out uh, of the areas that it cares about, which is search, you know, search and, and there are other aspects as well, obviously Maps and YouTube and all the other various products they make squillions of dollars off, but really it was search because search is the, the goose that lays the golden egg and, and mobile searches they just knew would be incredibly important. And so, you know, Google won market share, um, but Apple won all the profits. And I'm sure that was the part that Apple cared about. Um, not all the profits, but still. But um, but no, Apple did incredibly well on that side and Apple owns the high end and still does and, and the App Store for Apple does incredibly well. Um, so I think in a funny way, that job kind of came to a natural end for me where it was like, Google had won, Apple had won, Kindle, to be honest, it had really in the ebook space itself had, had really won. Um, the three, the three giants had all done well, and uh, the deals were kind of done. You know, so there was a, there was still a man, and there, that, there's a team that still exists who manage them, and they do new things and whatever else. But it sort of felt like a time for a, for a new
0: opportunity. And right after this break, Mark finds his new opportunity back in the world of startups. Mark Tanner was coming to the end of a four-year stint at Google, and he was looking around for what he wanted to do next. He'd been living in the States and wanted to move back to Sydney for love. He knew he enjoyed working in startups, and so wanted to get in on the ground floor with another company. So he reached out to everyone he knew, looking for a business that needed his unique skill set.
1: I came back for a friend's wedding. Uh, and at the wedding, I bumped into this guy, Dylan, who I'd known for years. He was, uh, he was a, a musician who played in, in a bunch of bands I used to f- see. And we'd been friends since we were, teen- like, friendly at least since we were teenagers. Um, and he'd, like, he'd been in this band and had, like, been on Triple J and toured the States and, like, had done all this cool stuff. But, of course, like, I hadn't realized that the whole time, you know, being a musician just doesn't pay you, <laughs> doesn't pay. And so the whole time he'd been a software engineer. And also a designer and so he'd been working and sort of built his own little business sort of little micro agency where he had started off with you know small clients but then grown and grown and grown into doing uh, you know work for Saatchi and Saatchi for Ogilvy for the Victorian government for Belvoir Theatre like a whole bunch of really cool stuff doing you know full stack work he would do back-end front-end design brand sort of everything in this space the thing that was Sort of struck him early on is he just like he just pathologically hated the process of pitching for work. He was just like this is so stupid that I have to do my pricing in Excel and then do my copy in Word and then merge both of them into InDesign to have it look like in any way nice. And then send to the client and then they're like oh I want to change this and that and this and so you then have to rip everything out again and like redo all this stuff and put it back in and it's incredibly clunky crap process. But he was also like, I'm digital. Like what I'm selling is my digital services. I want to make something that's like interactive and interesting and web-like. The, the sort of the aha moment really came for him when he was pitching the, the MD of Saatchi and Saatchi New Zealand for some work. They had a meeting in the morning. Uh, Dylan sent them a proposal in the afternoon and the guy called him sort of in the evening being like, how the fuck did you do this? Like you've created this like website. This is beautiful proposal. It's interactive is this a product this is a tool that we could use like this is amazing and so that's sort of so a he won the job but then b he, he you know that sort of started him down this path of sort of thinking about you know would this be a product that he'd want to do now dylan in his past had had he, he'd done a product business when he was 19 it was like a mobile shift rostering business amazing idea pre-iphone terrible idea um and so and so uh, uh He'd gotten funding, got some customers, but it never really worked out. But he also just found it incredibly tough to do it solo. So he knew he wanted to do it with someone. So to tack back to the wedding, I bump into Dylan there, who I've known for a long time. And we start talking and he's like, you're at Google, right? And I'm like, oh, that, that's true. I am at Google. And um, we start talking about that various stuff. And, and, and he turns out he's got this startup. He's got this startup idea he's been working on for a while. And then hilariously... One of the people that I'd been introduced to was this angel investor in Sydney called Gary Vizonte. and I was going to have a coffee with Gary that week, um, and just to sort of see, hey, you know, you're an angel investor. Have you seen any interesting companies that I should speak to? Dylan was also speaking to Gary, had been introduced to him by by another a friend of his, and so, and Gary had said, oh, there's this great guy from Google. You should you should, uh, as Dylan was explaining, his like his uh, co-founder was, he's like, oh, you should meet this guy from Google. So Gary. Without having met me, it was already matchmaking me to Dylan. We, we caught up with each other at this wedding, started talking, and, and then from there, sort of dived into it.
0: Dylan's idea was to break down these proposals into reusable chunks, allowing you to quickly and easily build a proposal in minutes. The proposals would be interactive as well, so you could add pricing information and allow the user to change that pricing based on the options that they selected. And when they were happy with the proposal, they could simply sign the document. It was designed to fix everything Dylan hated about the document creation process. And Mark was so inspired by this concept that he knew this was the startup idea that he'd been searching for.
1: You know, what he'd built at that stage and his vision for the product just spoke so deeply to me. And just, and again, also in sales land, just like knowing how shit this was uh, across like everything that was out there, like proposals, there's sort of this choice you have between trying to make it look good, which most people, to be frank, have no ability to do anyway, um, but like spending hours trying to make it look good or to get it out quickly. And to sort of be able to sort of do both of those at the same time within Quilla, as well as being webby and, and, and like on all the cool stuff you can do with the web, whether that's analytics or just the ability for like Quilla to like sync in with the cloud, right? Like be able to pull data in from your CRM, push data back out to your CRM or out to your accounting system, like if the deal is is won, you can ping a Slack channel and be like, "Hey, congrats, you've closed this deal." And also ping accounts, and also update Zero, and also update Salesforce. Files are like still isolated from that. They're the one dumb thing that doesn't work with the cloud in this modern era. Um, and so, what he you know, his whole he had all of this vision already like built out, as well as pieces around automation and thoughts on that side, way back in 2014. And so. It was uh, it was tremendously exciting, and we sort of got started. And you know, I just I quit Google shortly thereafter. Came back, and we, we worked out of his out of his very very dingy uh, dining room for the first six months for free, just just trying to make it work.
0: What was it about that idea that and about Dylan that that made you decide that like this is the this is a project that you want to dedicate time to that like, this is going to be the thing that you're going to, you're going to quit your, you know, presumably well-paid job at at Google to, you know, go into a startup and I'm going to do it with this person. Totally. Great question. To be
1: honest, it was, there were a whole bunch of different factors that fell into that and, and all of them were equally important. So I think one thing that is like, I'm so lucky and thankful for is that, I'd known Dylan for, for like ten years. You know, I, I'd had this shared history. I didn't know him super well. We weren't best friends or anything, but there was this degree of familiarity and social trust that I think makes it a lot easier in those early days versus just you know starting a company with someone you've just met, which can definitely work. But it's just you know it's easier if you've got a degree of history there. The second one was that one of my friends who was the tech lead for the um, the, the, the text editor in wave that the sort of the, the which even today you know editing text on the internet you would think is like easy to do insanely complicated and challenging um and uh building a great text editor is very hard and so having so my friend who'd done this who I'd gone to high school with I showed him this early version of Quiller and said hey can you come and have a look at this and, and look at Dylan's code because I don't I've got no idea if a lot of people can do nice things with code that, that produce a shiny output, but actually under the hood that it's terrible. And um, Dan was really impressed with what Dylan had built. And actually when when I came in at the start and put in a little bit of money, Dan put in a bit of money and, and came on board sort of part-time as a sort of semi-third co-founder. And to have him to have him vouch for Dylan, I mean, Dan is one of the best engineers I've, I've ever met. He's truly fantastic. And to have him vouch for Dylan, to have him come on board, put his money in, and then sort of, you know, work with us for that first year uh, in sort of building out all that sort of core stuff, that was a big part of it. But, but really, I think the thing that just sort of struck me again and again was like, everyone I spoke to about this idea, the main pushback was that, oh, it'll never work because like Microsoft and Google are too big and powerful, like they're, they're too big. They're too, you know, this is a, like, how would you ever win? Nothing's happened in documents and forever. Like da, 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 da. And there was no, no one would actually object to like the core underlying idea being bad. It was like, oh no, no, that's like, that's a great idea. But like, uh, why, you know, why isn't that already here? Except that you'll definitely lose. And I'd spent plenty of time inside Google and I was like, oh, that like, no, that's I'm not afraid of them. Like, I mean, I like, I mean, they're big and powerful and I think like I love my time there, but you know, they, they can be slow moving and stupid. And like, I remember being incredibly frustrated with, to be frank, I had huge arguments in 2013 about us supporting podcasts inside Android. Google didn't have an Android player until last year. Like it's completely insane that they didn't. Like this was exploding. Google didn't, all, like our book publishers had this whole thing about saying, we'd love you to sell our audio books because Amazon sells them via Audible and Audible is what powers the back end of Apple's thing so really it's just one buyer buys owns 80% of that market and they were like please come in and help us break this horrible monopoly and the people who ran Google Play at the time were like oh no it's not a, it's not it's not a big enough area and I'm like what are you what are you talking about anyway so I was near to say not particularly afraid and I think that you know an idea like this if it works out to the full extent it could work out, is gigantic. And I and I think that more and more, like I've drunk the Kool-Aid, but more and more I've become just convinced that, that this is the future we'll live in. Like that, you know, file-based documents is just not the way the world will work. It will be web pages and easy to build and, and create web pages that operate like documents. And there's a there's gonna be a debate as to like what sort of format that takes and, and how that sort of works and other stuff like that. But to be honest, you know, I'm just totally convinced that's where the future is, uh, and so it, it it felt it felt pretty easy with me. That being said, I would still say that like Dylan and I started working together, and we didn't have a contract between us for the first two months because like you want to you want to work with someone, you want to test it out a little bit, you want to feel comfortable, you know, make sure it's all it's all good, and you have those you know the partnership can actually work. I think luckily for us, there was also a pretty clear delineation between he owns product like design and engineering and that side of the business and I own sort of operations and and, and the customer facing side um, which made it a bit easier but but yeah I think um, I think all those things lined up pretty perfectly to be honest
0: so you could see this like very clear um, sort of delineation of like who does what um, and then like how did that then you know you got comfortable with each with with each other you realized like this is this is what you want to be doing. Um, like, what are those conversations like then of trying to work out like equity splits and, and things like that in the early days where, you know, he, or, he already had this sort of idea that was kind of like formed and you're sort of joining his idea. So there's, there's a book out there called, um, I think it's called Slicing the
1: Pie, which sort of speaks about a whole bunch of like theories and philosophies on this. And like, we, we both read the book and we're talking about it. And then we just completely fucking threw it out and uh, like ignored it altogether because it's, it's like, this is, it's not a science, it's an art, right? This sort of equity split stuff and and it's, it just needs to feel right to both parties. Um, I don't think Dylan will mind me saying this, but like Dylan at one point offered me a 50 50 split, which I refused. And I said, like, there needs to be the one thing I know in all these things is there needs to be someone who can make a decision. And it's you know like someone needs to have you know slightly more, and to be perfectly frank, it was pretty obvious in my mind that person was him. Um, and you know he then came back with it with a different split, uh, which was you know pretty close to that, but a bit more generous to him. And uh, and uh, I think we we haggled a, t- a tiny bit, and then I said fine because at the end of the day. If this is successful, like you know, if this is really successful, it's not going to matter. Even if it's moderately successful, it's it's you know it's sort of it's sort of not going to matter. It, it, the most likely outcome is that the startup dies, like it's just by far the most likely outcome. And you know, if it if we ever were lucky enough to have a meaningful exit, you know, whether you you know like whether you by that stage A you've both been diluted down a shitload if you've gone the VC route, which we have um and we sort of expected to um but but yeah like it's you know uh, it's going to be quibbling over over sort of little details at the end there and that's sort of much as money is part of the reason you might found a company it's like that would be a nice outcome to have at some stage and I think this like only reinforces itself more and more over time but it's just like the real joy of it is like in the doing like it's it is the journey like it's like this process is like really hard and the problems you solve when you're five people are very different to the problems you solve when you're 15 to 20 now that we're 40 and sort of growing towards 50 it's another set of problems and each time it's very humbling and challenging and you think you know what you're doing and you maybe don't always and you know I think um I think that's the sort of really enjoyable part but yeah I think that we were we were pretty closely aligned pretty quickly on the equity split and sort of were able to sort of move on pretty quickly from there.
0: Mark had found his business partner, and by the time he'd left his job at Google, Dylan had completely rewritten Quiller to the point where it was ready to actually launch. Mark's job was to now get customers to actually come and use the product. So he jumped on the phones and began this process of finding clients.
1: I did so many cold calls and so many trips and so many like just begging people to just use it and try it and give us feedback. And and we had like, you know, people using it for free. We eventually got a paid plan out there, which I think was like ten bucks a month, or maybe it was ten bucks. I think it was like a, a premium tier, which was twenty-five, which Lord only knows what we offered at that stage because I can't imagine there was any differentiation between the two the two tiers. But um but look, we 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 pretty quickly got a few customers on board who like genuinely liked it and used it and and it got a lot of value from it and it was so hard in the early days probably took us five four five or six months to get a a paid version out there a a good enough version to be paid out there um uh and then you know it really was a slog to get paying customers like we were getting you know a handful a month you know maybe maybe two or three or four um and it was just such hard work I, i do remember at about the 18 month stage of the journey sort of we had this uh I just remember thinking to myself, man, I had this like fantastic job at Google. It was well paid. I was getting USD. I was living in New York. Quite a high status job. Like Google wasn't evil yet. <laughs> so it was like, you know, I was like, oh, this is such a great job and I've now got this thing. And and it was uh, you know, I, I remember about that 18 month period, we hit a hundred maybe it was a bit early, but we hit a hundred customers at a certain point. And like a hundred customers in SaaS. Um is amazing because like if there's 100 people out there like why can't there be 200 why can't there be 500 one out of thousand and like the great thing with software is that it's sort of you know theoretically infinitely scalable uh, and very very low marginal cost to add new users but then I think at the time our average customer was paying us about like 40 bucks a month so, so so we like had 100 customers and were earning $4,000 a month, which was like, you know, like less than one person's salary on the team. And I was like, all of this huge amount of work had gone into this and like we were only doing a small amount. But really, and I remember actually feeling a little despondent at that time, but but of course, that was just where it was starting to turn. And all of a sudden, we had a little bit just within, within really within Sydney and to some degree within Australia, we had a bit of buzz around us and some people you know would hear from us from not just one source but from maybe two or whatever and we just started finding it a bit easier to get customers getting people on board um, having them stick around we started pricing a bit more aggressively we started adding we started actually finally building out a bit of a sales team which was like such a huge moment for us um, and really transformed our business and uh, of course from there you know it's sort of everything started to get easier and different challenges emerged but like Uh, you know, it's a bloody hard slog early on.
0: So how do you take a concept from 100 users and then turn it into a global business? That's coming up right after this break. Willa had built a core base of users, and the product was starting to grow. The team was investing in acquiring customers through inbound marketing, and they focused their time on giving all those initial customers a very hands-on experience, helping them get to know the product, so that those customers would learn to love it and then share it with others. And over time, they built enough users that they needed to build a global team that could handle things like support requests in the time zones that their customers were actually located.
1: The glory of selling software on the internet is that you're global from day one, and our product, you know, was designed to be to be global from day one. You know, any we could support any um, language that that you know that it, it, it goes in the traditional sort of left to right fashion. Um, and uh, whatever the web supports, really. And so it was very early on. You know, we had a, we had a hire about three years ago uh, to lead support for us in the US. The US has been our largest market, I'd say, probably from the second year of, of business onwards. Um, you know, today the US and Canada make close to 50% of our revenue from those two markets, Australia is probably about a quarter um, and then the rest of the world is sort of, is sort of out there, like Australia and New Zealand, let's say. Um, so we're still very much over-indexed in Australia and New Zealand and we, we, we love it here and, you know, obviously there's, there's a degree of local support, which is great. Um, but but no, I think you you have to be able to be, to be involved there. And I think that it's much, much, much better to have, you know, a local go-to-market team on the ground. And one of the things that we decided on pretty early on was like after some trial and error was that we actually, all of our go-to-market team, our customer-facing team is remote. There's nobody on that team in Sydney. So all of our product, almost all of our product team is in Sydney. So design and engineering and product is all in Sydney. But all of support, all of success, and all of sales are all remote. Um, And we did that for a few reasons. One is that it's as everyone is finding out now, it's like really hard to build a good remote culture. And if you kind of cheat and have some people in the office and some people not, it's very easy to have sort of two cultures there. And so we've sort of got like one culture that is much more sort of office-based, that's that's having a bit of a harder time right now, and one culture on the sort of customer-facing side that was truly remote from day one. And I think that, you know, building a good system around that early has sort of been very powerful for us you just have to invest in having people where your customers are because they want to like ask questions at all times of the day and night. They want to be able to have good demos. They want to get on on the phone with you. And so for us, having a team, you know, we now have a team. You know, we've got a team of of twenty around the world from India, Manila, Ukraine, UK, New York, Michigan, Portland, LA, San Fran. Um, Melbourne as well as the big team in Sydney Um, you know we have Athens I should say we've just added on Um, you know we have this sort of 24-hour global coverage that allows us to sort of really speak to our customers whenever they're out there and I think that it was pretty obvious early on that we need to have that at least for support and then pretty quickly for sales and in the early days those roles are you know pretty blurry there's there's, there's a real mix between them Um, but but yeah, we, we've been huge believers in that, and it's critically important for all startups to do that.
0: Given that you've got that, which you know sounds like roughly sort of half of your team that is sort of spread out remotely, like how how do you manage that culture piece um, when you're balancing both people that get to see each other every single day in the office with all these people that you know may be working alone or. You know, and working remotely, how how do you maintain an effective culture in that distributed workforce where you've got those two dynamics? Yeah, so it's
1: a, a few thoughts on that side. So so the first thing I'd say is is that um, we have a document inside Quilla that, that talks about like we have this principles document that talks about the things that we, we believe in and how we try to run the company. Um, and we call it principles because we firmly believe that like culture is somewhat undefinable like culture is people right like it's, it's the people who are there who are in the room who are interacting with you there's like a deeper thing about actions that we could get into but but really culture is the people like that you hire and that you bring in and, and, and that, that you have around there and it's ever-changing like it's gonna evolve and change and move you know from our side as we thought about this you know we made our fair share of mistakes in hiring early on right and a lot of people do and and um there were some really good mentors in the local startup scene who were very, very strict on this, who were like, hey, like, you know, who, who you know, someone used to ask this question a lot, who haven't you fired that you should have? And like, you know, there's always maybe in the early days, if you not, don't know how to, you don't really know what you're doing and you maybe make a few things, like there's always someone, some name that pops to mind. And that should never happen, right? Like it should never be the case, both for them and for the company, that that sort of happened. Um, because that just shows like a real misalignment. And so what we try really hard to do is to hire people who who, who will fit into that remote culture but also people who, who are able to sort of be open, honest, humble, hardworking and sort of thoughtful and caring to each other. Like we've got like a really like nice, like kind group of people who are in the team. Uh, you know, our principles are like tend to attract a certain type. Like our principles are undeniable bestness, like, you know, we don't think you win by doing hacks and, 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 and tricks and games, you win by doing just excellent quality work and that's in every facet of the company. Um, we have another one which is Velocity with Valor, which is a great one at, at odds with the first one because often, you know, if you're going for undeniable bestness, you can often be afraid to ever release anything, but Velocity with Valor is like, hey, you, you, we're a startup, we have to move quickly and how do, how do you hold those two things in tension? The third one, and I think for me the most important one is clarity through collaboration, which is to say that I don't have all the perfect answers. You know, Chris, you don't have all the perfect answers, but together or as a group, maybe we can get towards a better answer here. And I think people who sort of are into that sort of space of, of being open, transparent, honest, hardworking, able to sort of you know, get on those those pieces together, I think find a natural home here. It doesn't matter that it's remote, especially if you can sort of try to be sort of be asynchronous and and be open to sort of different ways of working here and there that being said we were pretty devastated by I mean I don't want to like make light of it but like we were pretty devastated by the whole COVID thing because like we had our big annual company retreat coming up and like one of the things that's true is that it's important to be in the same room sometimes and so every year for a week we fly everybody in and we, we typically have people spend a week or two in Sydney just in the office and then we go away for a week and we were going to go down to the south coast because it got so badly hit by the fires we were going to spend some money down there and you know take all the tourists to the to the mogo zoo and and whatever else and just uh, try to be sort of good citizens and it sucked to have to cancel that um both for us and also for that community down there and i think that we you know we'll do it again as soon as we as, we, as soon as we possibly can i don't, don't know when that is but there is something really important about every year getting everyone together and then and then, sort of six months later you know the product team will do their own one and, and the business team will do their own one as well which i think is a critically important time to just get to know people and, and hang out and yeah you'll do some work stuff but you'll also do some just fun social stuff too
0: you heard mark mention earlier that the initial paid quiller plans were around 25 dollars These days, the price is closer to $70. And if you look at any SaaS product, you're likely to find the cost of the product changing over time. So if you have a SaaS business, how do you determine what the right price is to charge for your product? It is, I think, impossible
1: to ever know if if you're charging correctly. Everybody I know who runs a SaaS business hates their pricing, much like they all hate their websites. Everyone might be like, oh, it's a great website. Oh, I hate it. Because whatever it is, it's this thing that's frozen in time to some degree, and I think that, that the reality with pricing, the same could be sell, said for sales comp plans. Everyone tends to that's it. There's always you never find a perfect one. I think with, with pricing, it's it's an incredibly hard thing to know what you know how to price things. And I think for my advice for young startups is always just pick something. You know, pick something in the ballpark. You know, I know Intercom famously was just like forty nine dollars. And, uh, you know, I think for us, we started at 25 and like just pick some random number, it could be 99, could be 1,000, whatever it is. There's generally a ballpark that you know of like rationality that where you start and you generally, early, the earlier on you are, you generally, you know, charge a bit less because your product's a bit crap and you'd, and you'd also rather have more customers and less revenue early on because you learn so much from those customers that, that, that it allows you to sort of build a better product, therefore you can move uh, pricing up. Look, it's a very funny problem because you'll speak to, you know, with SaaS pricing, you'll speak to some customers, and you'll have customers who are like, "Oh, that price is really high. Like, how how do I justify this?" And we have we have calls with customers who, when we tell them our enterprise pricing, like laugh on the call because it's so cheap. And so, like, there's this, you know, there's this mix, and part of me is like uh, mildly infuriated at the laughter, being like, "Oh, I could have gotten extra there," but. There is an important thing to being open and transparent with pricing and SaaS. And we really do you know, tr- believe in that. I think there's a lot of sort of bullshit games that go on in the other sort of hidden pricing version. Um, but look, it, there is no perfect way of doing it. And, I, and really, it's, it's, a, it's a constant thing of iteration. There are all these clever people um, who, who work on pricing and can tell you all sorts of models and surveys and things you can do. But even that only really guesses at it and you're also asking existing customers or potential customers what they would pay and there's always a question of like how to interpret that data. Um, it, it's not, that really has some real value but but I would also say that the best things that we ever do is just to run, run experiments on it. And so last year we took our entry price point and we halved it. We took our top tier price point and we doubled it. And we were like, I wonder what will happen here. And like our entry price point, we saw, you know, we saw double the sales but it actually was eating into our middle price point which was actually a much much better customer base for us our top tier pricing you know our sales dropped by like 10 percent. so we were like oh so we doubled pricing and we, <laughs> sales almost didn't drop at all like this is fantastic like and so part of me is like i wonder if we could double it again but um but i think that and obviously you need a, everyone who's paid before gets grandfathered in and you you know you leave them be and whatever else but it's a very hard thing in software to sort of know what the value is because sometimes you for some companies you can provide so much value. Like we we have a company that that used to have half of their design team working on designing proposals and quotes for their sales team. Now that team has like, they're like, oh, we've just like redesigned our website, launched a new website, and have this like capacity to do all these other sort of things that were just never on the table before. Because we basically got two designers, two full-time designers back because of Quiller. And like that sort of impact is, yeah, is sort of unbelievably powerful.
0: With everything that you've achieved as a business, as an entrepreneur, how do you feel? I
1: feel really proud. I feel really thankful. I feel, I feel relatively content in a sense. And I feel like, thankfully, still wildly ambitious and I think it can sound like a contradiction between those final two, between being content and being ambitious, but I'm very, very ambitious for Quiller. Um, but I'm quite content in my little world inside Quilla of like this ever-changing puzzle uh, that you never quite get right but you're always getting a bit bigger and better at. Uh, and I think just being sort of content in the flow of, of of how this, of figuring out how to make this grow, how to make this thrive, how to make it survive. You know, if you'd asked me this a week or two ago, when we were really were in the height of of, of the COVID, um, the most intense. I think I think because it was quite unknown, it was especially scary for a minute there, at least for me. Um, you know I was very adrenaline filled and reactive and whatever else, but but I think that the nice thing you know we've now gone to this position where it's you sort of look out and you say, okay, well, actually we are well placed. We are still growing not as much as we were beforehand, but we are definitely still growing, which is nice. We've got a very strong customer base, um, we've got a very, very strong team and and it's you know it's 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 going to be hard, but it's going to be a real interesting challenge. And a real privilege to work with this bunch to try to like find ways to sort of get out get out of this and I think that for us at least it's been it's been enjoyable these past few weeks to to go on the back foot for a change and and to think defensively which is not the normal startup experience to think how how are we positioned how can we protect ourselves you know we had been thoughtful about this you know we're not foolish but we've been thoughtful about that but like to spend some time thinking on that and, and, and reflecting on there and making sure that we were as strong as we thought and making a few judicious cuts and things like that. But now we're starting to sort of get back on the front foot a little bit and how do we sort of move forward and where do we want to go and what opportunities are out there. It's a really interesting, exciting time and yet again, you know, another one that I don't have all the answers but it's going to be fun to, to go and try to figure it out.
0: building a unicorn is a lawson media production this episode was hosted and scripted by me christopher lawson james parkinson mixed and mastered this episode our theme music is by nick buchanan and our artwork is from andrew millist now we really want to inspire you as entrepreneurs to make the most of this time in isolation so if you'd like to get your hands on some great building a unicorn merch head across to podmerch.co There's plenty of great items in store to inspire you to build your own unicorn. So that's podmerch.co. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Build a Unicorn. And you can find all of our episodes and episode transcripts at our website, buildingaunicorn.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening.